you have your uh, Bibles, I trust that you will please uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You might have a phone or an iPad. You might even actually have this little thing that's it's made of paper. It's called a book, the Bible. But 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, we'll get to that in just a moment. We want to talk about being with Christ. That's what we're talking about uh, for the next couple of weeks. At the end of this service today, we're going to have a time of prayer. And uh, we're going to pray for anyone uh, who has uh, need in their life, whether it be um, healing in uh, many different ways. Uh, God heals us, so we're going to have a time of prayer at the very end. And I invite you to be prepared for that and ready for that. Have you ever done something that was foolish? <laughs> snicker, 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 snicker. Yeah, it's like, yeah. I was, I was going to tell you the story, but it's a much too, too long of a story, but I was going to tell you the story about the first year Lisa and I were married. We were going to meet another couple and then get in their car and go to this event about an hour away. We didn't want to drive two cars. We were just going to drive one. And the place we needed to meet them was kind of a deserted place. And so we were looking for a place to leave our car to get in their car and to go to this event. The only place that was in this vicinity was a Ford dealership. And I thought to myself, there's lots of cars there. A couple parking, empty parking spots. Seems logical. Until we got back at 1030 at night and we realized they have these iron gates that just close in. <laughs> That's a long story, but and, and we won't even talk about the security guard that we had to deal with. But, it, but that's, it's a whole other story for another moment in time. Foolishness. There's a guy named uh, Robert Ricketts who wanted to see how close he could put his head to a moving train. He'll have to try again. There was a Seattle burglar who tried to siphon gasoline from a motorhome. And instead of the putting the hose into the gas tank found a different tank. Larry is a guy who always wanted to fly. He wanted to be in the Air Force, and so that neither one of those really worked out. So he decided to go to the Army surplus store, and he bought 45 weather balloons and strapped them to his lawn chair. He was expecting to go 30 feet high. It was much higher than that. In his book, The Attributes of God, A.W. Pink talks about the attributes of God, and he talks about each one of them, such as knowledge, sovereignty, power, patience, grace, and mercy. But two things that are not in the book as the attributes of God are foolishness and weakness. We think about the attributes of God, those are not two things that we think about, foolishness or weakness. And yet, there's this issue where the Bible talks about foolishness and some of the things that God does and the way in which He does them, where they're described as foolishness. And don't think we're talking heresy. Let's go ahead and read that, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we'll start with verse number 17, and we'll read to the end of this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, which is called good news, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
Here, what Paul is saying is that God did not call me to, to speak with persuasive words of man's wisdom and eloquence of language and, and atri, atri, uh, this, this, this maneuvering of the language to impress people. He said, that's not what God's called me to do. Let's keep reading. Verse number 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let no one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There are things that God calls foolish that aren't. And there's things that he says aren't that are. It's this, it's this tension between looking at the foolishness of man and the foolishness of God. When I say foolishness, you, that's not a disrespectful term. I think you know that at this point. Here's some examples of things that God does that seem foolish. Number one is, he says that women are the weaker vessel. Now, if you think about it, he's called women to be husbands, uh, to be wives to husbands. You cannot be a weaker vessel. You can't be some, can I, can I get some masculine amens from this or something? You, you can't be weak and be married to a man. Okay, I got a feminine amen. Okay, that's great. Okay. One brave woman in the group. Inside you're going, preach it, brother. And then giving childbirth. I mean, you know, doing that whole thing. It's like, you can't be weak. So there's, there's another dichotomy to that. What is he talking about when he talks about weakness? He's not talking about that total person. It looks foolish. It looks like, are you kidding me? Okay, his son, Jesus, being born, 
If you're the king of the universe, you're the creator of the whole thing, you know, you'd think you'd make it a big giant thing like there's fireworks in the sky and there's all this, everyone would know it, everyone would be announced, it would be in a palace, it would be in some, wow. He says, no, I think we'll just do it through a young virgin and, and this guy, this carpenter, and we'll do it in Bethlehem, a little tiny nothing town, little podunk place with two horses. And, you know, we're just going to kind of announce it to a few shepherds on the hill, and that's how we're going to do it. <coughs> Seems foolish. It's foolish that he would take someone like Paul, who was trained in the law as a Jew. He was a Jew of all Jews, man. He was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. And you would think after his conversion that he would go to the Jews and preach Christ, but he was sent to the Gentiles. And Peter was the guy who was kind of all over the place and impetuous, and, and he was sent to the Jews. It seems backwards to look at that. Examples of what would appear to be weakness in God is that he would allow his people, Israel, to be in slavery for 400 years. It would appear as though God was like, well, I, I can't really do anything about it. I mean, they're just in slavery. We'll have to submit to Pharaoh. You know, obviously, that's not the deal. But it appears that the Israelites' God is weak if he allows them to be in slavery for 400 years. Jesus allowed people to say to him, you have demons. You're, you're full of demons. I mean, if I were God, they would be dead. It's like, you're not going to talk to me that way. So it appears as though Christ is being weak. Oh, well, say what you want. Paul preached the power of God, but he did so with the scars of being beaten. He did so being chained inside of a prison. He did so while suffering near death many times. It would appear that the God who Paul is proclaiming is strong and powerful and king and Lord appears very weak if Paul keeps finding himself thrown into prison. You see that tension there between wisdom of God, wisdom of man, strength of man, strength of God, and you see this weirdness in that. And we get those two confused. And sometimes we think that God is supposed to fix all of our problems right now because we want him to. And when he doesn't, we think, well, he must be weak. He's on vacation or whatever. We make that mistake. And yet God is saying in the right time, in the right moment, in the right way, I'm going to make this happen. You see, the Jews of this day in which Christ walked on the earth were not interested in a suffering Savior. They were not interested in seeing this king suffer on a cross. They were like, well, then, you know, if, if we were able to kill him on a cross, then, yeah, this king stuff, this savior stuff, this God of the world, yeah, I'm not buying it. They were not interested. They wanted a king that would just rule with a mighty hand and throw the Romans out of Israel and just, yeah, establish for them what they wanted, when they wanted it, and how they wanted it. And so God comes along and says, uh, you think you're so wise, but I'm going to really show you wisdom. It's going to look foolish, but I'm going to show you what wisdom is all about. The cross of Christ was rejected because it did not meet their preconceived ideas about a Savior or King. You see, a God who makes sense never acts outside of our boundaries. We have boundaries for God. Now, come on. We have boundaries for God. This is the way God operates or this is the way I want him to operate. 
And a God who makes sense would never act outside of the limitations that I have set. We've all tried to play God before. Okay, so I'm the only one. Yeah, we, we have these ideas, and God's going to do it this way. This is how it's all going to happen. And when he does something outside of that, we're going like, no, no, that's foolish. God would never do that. He would never do it that way. And so we lose track. Predictability and faith cannot coexist. Faith is that substance inside of us that causes us to follow God wholeheartedly, abandoning everything else, and it causes some people to walk on water. It causes some people to say to the dead, rise up. It causes some people to say to one who has never walked before, get up, you're going to walk today. doesn't make any sense. It looks foolish. And yet, it's directed by God. Faith is that unpredictability of just saying, God, what are you wanting to do today? It wasn't the right timing yesterday, but it's the right timing today. Jesus and his disciples were always unpredictable. He was always going to the wrong houses, hanging around the wrong people, and healing people on the wrong day. They were so upset and because somebody got healed on the Sabbath. Can somebody spell idiot? You know, it's like, really? You're not glad that he got healed? Oh, it was the wrong day. God would never do that. Maybe he would. <clears throat> you see, the Pharisees wanted Jesus to be the same as they were. They wanted him to be this, have the same doctrine and faith that they had spent centuries taming. Let's, let's tame it down to a set of rules. Let's tame it down to what we do to develop our own righteousness. Oh, we'll follow the law of the Lord but we'll forget about giving people mercy and grace and going the extra mile. And God forbid that we take two extra steps on the Sabbath. See, they were wanting to box God in. There was a man uh, in the Old Testament that we're going to talk about in just a moment, but I've asked for a volunteer, and uh, I have a volunteer. Carson's going to come up here, and he is a criminal. <laughs> he has done things wrong. You're going to stand right there, please. And so, you know what happens to criminals? I've never done this to anybody. I need to just relish this for a moment, okay? All right, all right. You have the right to remain silent or whatever that says. Okay, I want to do this the right way because I bet that hurt. Too tight? I can go tighter. No, just kidding. Okay, all right. All right, hope I have the key. <laughs> So here's a criminal. He's done wrong. He has broken the law of God. He's in bondage. He can't get out. He's a sinner. He doesn't know Christ, just like you and I were before we met Christ. We had broken the laws of God. We had broken the heart of God, if you will, and we were guilty. He's guilty. Now, the Bible talks about the fact that, uh, that God doesn't allow that kind of sin, this, this unrighteousness to be in his presence. And, and, it's, and there's a barrier between sinfulness and God. Though he's merciful and he's, he's trying to draw, you know, he's trying to pull us, but he says, uh-uh. Nope. Your righteousness, your righteous acts can't bring you to me because you're in bondage. You've sinned. You can only come the way I prescribe and not the way you want to come. 
Well, there was a man in the Old Testament named uh, Naaman. You find this here in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman was, let's just call him a five-star general. He was the commander of an army, not the army of Israel, but another army. And so Naaman was a big deal. He, he was the five-star. He was huge. But the problem was Naaman had leprosy. Now, leprosy is a, is a disease that slowly kills, slowly destroys. It just slowly eats away your flesh. It's just really nasty. And there was no cure, absolutely no cure for that at all. And so here's this five-star general, and he's got leprosy. It talks about a spot of leprosy, which then would have continued to grow and grow and grow. So I don't know where that spot was, maybe on his arm, but he has leprosy. Well, obviously that creates quite a problem because there has to be separations, a whole lot of problems that creates, obviously. But he hears that there is a prophet named Elisha, and that uh, if he were to go to this prophet, that prophet could pray and God would heal him of his leprosy. He's like, let's go. So they find out where the prophet Elisha's at. They, him and his sergeant go and uh, they present themselves outside the tent of Elisha. And so here's what happens. It's uh, right there in 2 Kings 5. It says, Elisha sent a messenger to him. So Elisha didn't even come out of the tent. Elisha stays in the tent and sends a messenger and says, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. He says, okay, Naaman, you're here. I'm not coming out of my tent. I'm just sending a messenger to you to tell you what to do. Go to the Jordan River, go wash in it, come out. Go back seven times and you will be clean. You would think, yes, where's the Jordan? Let's go. Not the case. Here's the response. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought, that's the first words out of his mouth. I thought, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. See, he had his way. He had already thought it through. He said, okay, I'm, I'm on horseback, camel, donkey, whatever. I'm, I'm getting to Elisha, and this is the way he's going to do it. This is the way he's going to do it. He's going to come out to me. He's going to call on the name of the Lord his God. He's going to wave his hand over that spot, and I'm going to be, man, this is going to be amazing. That's why it's so abrupt and a shock when the prophet of God says, we're not doing it that way. You're going to go dip seven times in the River Jordan. So Naaman becomes angry. And then look, what, look what's next because this is, so, this is so American. He says, Are not the Abana and the Parfa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? See, he's saying, okay, 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 all right, okay, I give it to you, God. You didn't do it just the way I thought you were going to do it, but the Jordan River? You want me to go into the Jordan? I'll go into one of these, or this one, or that one, but the Jordan? See, he's like, I will acquiesce to a degree. I will go to a limit, but I'm not going to the Jordan. That's outside of the boundaries that I have established for God to act. And so what happens? 
he goes away angry. But his sergeant says, um, hey, look, uh, you know, if he'd have asked you to do something great and wonderful, would you have done it? Yes. Well, he's asked you to do something simple. Let's do it. Well, the good news is that Naaman went, okay. And he went and he washed seven times in the Jordan. And when he came out the seventh time, he was completely restored and healed. But his, the inclination of his heart was that, oh, no, he's, God's going to do it this way. Okay. He wants to do it a different way, but I'm not going that far. But then he did. And thank God for that. But you and I have faced that same thing. I know I have. So it's like, okay, God, you want to you do it this way? Kind of okay. I mean, kind of. I'll, I'll take the principle and I'll just do it over here. I'll do it a different way in a different place in a different style. And God says, you're missing the whole point. The foolishness of the cross is the power that we have of being saved. It is not the cross and. It is not Christ and. It, it is not repentance and. It is Christ hung on a cross to pay the price for our sin by which we are set free. And there's nothing we can add to that. And that's the foolishness. See, everyone would accept, you know, if you accept Christ, you say a little prayer, come down to the front, say a little prayer, and then, you know, you kind of clean up your act and you become good, you'll go to heaven. They'll be like, yeah, where do I say that prayer? Because then I just have to kind of be good. But the problem is, we got handcuffs. So, Let's hone in right now on verse number 30 in this 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is where we're going to look at three points, and we're going to bring this to a close. Here's what verse number 30 says. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness Holiness and redemption. First off, he says, this is your righteousness. In other words, that means approved by God. So let's say this sinner over here, Mr. Carson, says, oh, God, I am so sorry. I've sinned. I recognize I'm in bondage. I've sinned. Lord, you please, please wash me. Please, please forgive me. Then what happens? He says he receives the righteousness of God. He is made righteous or he is approved by God. So now Carson has my approval if I were God and I am not. But if I was, then Carson would have my approval. So Carson, come up here. You graduated. Kind of freaked him out. All right, so now he's in the presence of God because he's been approved by God. He's been made righteous. He was unrighteous, he was made righteous. That's what you and I have gone through. We were made righteous by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And now we can stand before God. We can stand before him recognizing that there is no longer this barrier between us of sin because we've been made righteous. We've been made right by the foolishness of the way God saved us. It seems so foolish to us, but it is the wisdom of God. It's not foolish. It just looks foolish to us. But it's through that that now Carson is made righteous before God. But he goes on and he says holiness. Now, some of the translations you have might say sanctification. Well, you don't really use that word much anymore. We don't even use holiness much anymore, do we? Holiness 
really talks about this. He says, you've been cleansed by God, sanctified. You, you, when you were born again, you are both sanctified and you will continually be sanctified. Sanctification is an instantaneous right now, yes, you are sanctified to God. And yet it is also a lifelong process of being sanctified because God is still working on us and we, we haven't become perfect yet, have we? And so there's this, but he says right now you are holy before God. Now, what is that saying? That means if Carson said, hey, God, please forgive me. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. And I said, okay, you, you, you're, you're in the presence of God, but God didn't change his heart. What would happen? He'd just go commit another crime again. He'd, be, he'd still be doing sin because the heart hasn't changed. But that's what he's saying. Through the cross of Jesus, not only is he righteous before God, but the heart has changed. Now, long, now Carson no longer desires to do sin. He says, no, I desire to serve God. Now, I may trip and stumble every once in a while, but I'm desiring because my heart has changed, and that's what God has done for us. He has changed our heart from unholy to holy. The Bible talks about God taking out of us that heart of stone, that heart that is hard toward God. We talk about that, boy, that person has a hard heart, a cold-hearted. That person's cold. That person's hard-hearted. It means they're, they're, they're stiff. They're, they won't submit. But God says, I'm taking that heart out of you, and I'm putting inside of you a heart that's supple and, and, and fleshly. It's, it's soft. It's pliable because I'm changing the very inside of who you are. That's the power of God. Religion can't do that. Just good works can't do that. But it is through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ that our inside of our life has changed. Our heart has changed. And therefore, we no longer desire to do sin. But we still have a problem. Carson now is in the presence of God. He's been righteous. He's now holy. The inside of him has changed. But there's one more thing. He's still in handcuffs. And some people try to live that way. They say, I'm a Christian. I love the Lord. I'm good. God's made me holy. I, you know, I really. But then they, they're traveling down the road and they just go, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm good with this. I'm good with this. I'm okay. I'm saved. I still have these same depression or anger issues or same whatever, fill in the blank, whatever. It's been passed down through my generations. Maybe I battle alcoholism, addiction. Profanity, pornography. I can't stop talking badly about people. I talk behind people's back. My parents did it. Their parents did it. Aunts and uncles do it. We're all alcoholics. We're all gossips. We're all depressed. We're all whatever. And we've been set free, but yet we, we're not. We're righteous because we've been forgiven, but yet we still find ourselves going, I, I want to I break free. I want to... I wanna, I want to be able to use these limbs that God's given me. I want to be able to use the emotions that God's given me. I want to be able to use relational skills that God's given me, but I'm bound and I can't do it. But he ends it by saying there, you are free. He has set us free. He's brought liberty to our lives. And he's saying we have been liberated by God. That means God has a key. Praise God. God has a key. But I don't know how to use these. Just kidding. Yeah. 
I told you, I don't know how to use these. All right, there's one. Yeah. Well, you're going to have to do the other one. So. I don't know where the thing is. Thank you, Carson. Appreciate it, man. Way to go. So here's the deal. God has made us righteous, holy, and he's brought redemption to our life. He has brought a liberty to our life. And we cannot dare fall short of receiving everything God has for us, living in, walking in everything God has for us. And that is that lifelong endeavor that we say, you know what, God, I want, I want to be free, live in freedom. I don't want to be held back by ancestors. I don't want to be held back by my own dumb decisions, foolish decisions that I've made. And I don't want to be held back by anything, God. I want anything that's chaining me, everything that's binding me to be free and loosed. And that's where the power of the Holy Spirit comes in and reminds us of the fact that we think the foolishness of the cross is so vital and real. And God's saying that's the wisdom of God. The cross is the wisdom of God, because if we were to be set free, supposedly by our own strength, then we think, hey, look how great I am. And God said, no, you're not great. You're great when you submit to the power of the cross. And when you submit to the power of the cross, that's what you get. You get righteousness, holiness, and you get freedom. And everybody in here desires that, and everybody in this community desires that, needs that, and wants that. They're maybe looking for it in different places but every person in this community needs it and wants it. And we are the ones who are Christ's ambassadors going out, not telling people bad news, but good news. Amen? So here's the deal. Do you know Christ today? In other words, have you come to that point where you say, you know what, yeah, I've, I've, I'm, I've sinned, I've done wrong, and I, I don't, I'm not close to God. I, I, I could, there's no way I could stand in God's presence. No way. But today you can if you'll come to the cross and say, God, please forgive me of my sin. I accept what Christ did on the cross for my sin. I accept what Christ did on the cross for my life. And now, Lord, I receive your forgiveness. I receive the righteousness that you give me. I receive the holiness you give me. I receive the liberty that you give me. And that's when we come before him and say, God, I want to be free. And he goes, yeah, I want you to be free too. You are now free because you've accepted the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what makes the difference.